me pray for us as we uh, uh, dive into God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us. We pray now as we reflect on uh, this chapter of Daniel that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be transformed uh, by your word to become more like Jesus. This we ask in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Many of you will have heard the saying to have a Kodak moment, uh, a famous saying because basically uh, in the 80s and uh, before that, uh, into the 90s a little bit as well, uh, Kodak was synonymous with photography because it was a film and photographic paper company. But what you may not know is that Kodak also invented the first ever digital camera in 1975. And uh, they had a little, you know, research and science lab going on it. They developed this digital camera and they took it to the board and the board dismissed it. Then, in 1981, a few years later, they commissioned an extensive study into the impact of digital cameras on the photographic paper and film industry, which found that perhaps in the next 10-ish or so years, digital was going to take over in major ways and be a major threat to the photographic paper and film industry, and they dismissed it. Then, their research lab managed to develop the first ever megapixel camera. And I can remember when I got my first ever digital camera, it had two megapixels. Um, and it was super exciting, but the, the, the megapixel was going to be the thing that revolutionised uh, digital photography. Kodak had actually figured this out in their study. They develop it and dismiss it. Ah, oh, no one would ever want that. Then, in the early 90s, there's a digital expert and a photographic paper and film expert who are vying for the job as Kodak CEO, and the board picks the film and photographic guy. Time and time again, they have this uh, opportunity to see the truth of the situation, uh, what the future will hold, and they dismiss it and dismiss it and dismiss it. And what we've seen so far in the book of Daniel is King Nebuchadnezzar having a few of his own Kodak moments, though I'm not talking about the birth of his child, I'm talking about missing the obvious. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, has had plenty of chances to realise who God is uh, and, and what he should do in response to that, but he keeps on missing it. And as we get to chapter 4, uh, and as uh, uh, um, Diane read for us those opening verses, we ought to be pretty shocked, because you'll remember that back in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they've just survived the fiery furnace, uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar, we read, is relatively amazed by this. He, he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against this god should be cut up into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other god can save in this way. 
So we've seen King Nebuchadnezzar have a response where he goes, wow, this God's powerful, but that's kind of where he leaves it. The same thing happened in chapter 2 when Daniel came and told and interpreted his dream. He said, wow, that God's cool, but he doesn't change his ways. As far as we know, that big idol that he's put up that got Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego into so much trouble in the first place, well, that's... Uh, still there. We don't read about that going being taken down or anything like that. As far as we know, uh, he's still uh, going about issuing murderous decrees. His, as we've heard, his, fam- his favourite kind of thing is to cut people up into pieces and put, put their houses into rubble. He, he promises to do that a few times. Uh, and so, given we've seen the, the slowness of King Nebuchadnezzar to realise who God is... We'd expect that if we were to read a letter from King Nebuchadnezzar, like we have in chapter 4, that it might start something like this. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, to people everywhere, fear and worship me, for I am the most powerful man in the world, and if you don't, I'll cut you up into little pieces. But surprisingly, that's not how it starts. Let me read to you again, verses 1 through 3. I, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Whoa! That is unexpected. That is not what we would expect this King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've got to know over the last three chapters, to say as he opens a letter. Well, how has this happened? Well, the rest of the the chapter goes on to explain. We read in verses 4 through 18 of King Nebuchadnezzar's bad dream. Terrifying dream, verse 5. I had a dream, Nebuchadnezzar says, that made me afraid. I was lying in bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And we read how, once again, in verse 7, he he has this dream. He turns to his magicians and enchanters uh, to get their interpretation, but they're useless, just like they were in chapter 2. And so he turns to Daniel, the chief magician, in verse 8. And he tells Daniel what this terrifying nightmare is. There's this big tree we read. I couldn't find, unfortunately, this week, like I had a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, uh, an animated YouTube video of the dream. So you're going to have to uh, go with my uh, retelling. There's this big tree, so big, we read in verse 11, that you can see it from anywhere on the earth. A beautiful tree that provides food and shelter for all. And then this messenger comes down from heaven in verses 13 and 14 and calls for the tree to be cut down for the fruit and everyone who's finding shelter in it to be scattered. But the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze in verse 15 are to remain in the ground. So it's a a total destruction, but there's sort of like a little bit left. And then we read in verses 15 to 16 that uh, it rains... And the tree, which we now see, seems to represent a person. The tree sort of becomes personified in this dream. You know how dreams work. They don't really make sense. Um, you know, maybe this is why Nebuchadnezzar's terrified, because there's this huge tree that gets destroyed and then it kind of becomes a person. That sounds pretty terrifying to me. Well, the, the tree uh, uh, is told that it must, this destroyed tree has to live amongst the animals 
uh, and uh, will have its mind changed from that of a man to that of an animal, that this will go on for seven times and that this will happen because God has commanded it, verse 17, so that all people will know that God is sovereign over all kings. It's a scary dream. And in verses 19 through 27, we get Daniel's interpretation. And in fact, it's such a scary dream that even Daniel's scared by the dream on Nebuchadnezzar's retelling we read in verse 19. Uh, And probably as well, I reckon he's scared because as he hears the dream and as he prays to God and asks for an interpretation, we assume he knows that he, he realizes the scary news he has to deliver to this crazy king who likes to cut people up into thousands of pieces. And so, Daniel goes and he delivers the interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar. This big, beautiful tree in verse 21, he says, you, your majesty, verse 22, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. You are the king of the known world. And And in your kingdom, uh, uh, shelter and provision uh, are made for all. But just like the tree has a bad end, so too will you. The tree there that gets cut down by this decree from heaven and has the dew and the rain and the mind of the animal seven times, what does this mean for King Nebuchadnezzar if he's the tree? Well, Daniel says in verse 25, you will be driven away from, from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. But remember the tree, like it wasn't all destroyed, it still had its stump and Daniel says, but... The command to leave the stump of the tree, verse 26, with its roots, means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules, that God is sovereign. And so, as Daniel finishes interpreting the dream, he he pleads with King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, this is what the dream means, but let me tell you a way to avoid it. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice, verse 27, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. This dream is like a warning, King Nebuchadnezzar. You've had uh, these moments already where you could have fallen on your knees and worshipped the king. You've, You've seen him demonstrate his sovereign rule and reign. Now he's sending you this dream telling telling you what's going to happen if you still refuse to do it. Please, says Daniel King Nebuchadnezzar, do it now. Let this dream be enough for you to renounce your sins and to turn to God and do what is right so that uh, your prosperity will continue. Turn to God and save yourself from what this dream predicts. Well, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do that. And we read about what happens in verses 28 through 33, where the dream comes true. Nebuchadnezzar carries on in his old ways, ways that we've become so familiar with in these opening chapters of Daniel so far. And we read he he carries on kind of um, unperturbed by the dream for another 12 months. 
You can imagine, can't you, that he sort of was a little bit worried in the days and weeks after Daniel told him the interpretation, kind of looking over his shoulder, waiting for something bad to happen. And he thought, oh, and he issued a decree and he kept ignoring God and, you know, time went on and on and on. He thought, ha, 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 I've got this God beat. In fact, I think that's exactly what happened because look what happens 12 months later in verses 29 and 32. 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said... Ah, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I am in charge. I am the best. I am the boss. Look what I have done. And as he says those words, we read in verse 31, a voice comes from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. And you can probably imagine as soon as he hears that, that his knees begin to tremble. Uh-oh, the dream's coming true. This is what has been decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And immediately we read that he seemingly goes mad and unkept in verse 33. And he's like that for seven times over, however long that actually is. And eventually, we read, verse 34, that at the end of that time, he eventually, in his desperation, turns to God. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. And he says of this God, his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you you done? And as he, uh, uh, in that place of, of desperation, acknowledges God's sovereign rule over his life, He is restored. Verse 36. My sanity was restored. My honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. And as that happens, he moves from these kind of token half gestures that we've seen so far to to a a true and right acknowledgement of God and his sovereign rule and reign. Verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble and I know that firsthand. King Nebuchadnezzar goes from a proud king to uh, doing what really only any of us can do, which is humbly acknowledging our position before the sovereign God of this universe. And coming to that realisation of the sovereignty of God is hard. It can be hard for you and me, but it can, of course, we understand, be more than difficult for those who are used to exercising power and control 
Uh, one of the commentators, as he reflects on this, tells the story of, uh, of uh, Louis the... Oh, I should have checked my Roman numerals. Louis the Fourteenth, uh, who is uh, at a, his funeral service in Notre Dame. And his request as the powerful uh, king was that the whole cathedral would be darkened except one candle which would be on his coffin. And the court preacher, uh, a guy called Massillon, gets up and the first thing he does when he gets up to preach at this king's funeral is snuff out the candle on the funeral of this great king's uh, coffin and says, only God is great. Only God is great. Louis realised it in death. Neb realises it in life, that God is sovereign over the kings of this world, that he's sovereign over the governments of this world, that he's sovereign over you and me, that he's sovereign over your friends and family. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean for God to be the sovereign king of the world? Well, I want to reflect on that for a little bit, but Firstly, I, I want to say a couple of things that it doesn't mean. Because often when we think of the sovereignty of God, it's helpful to think, uh, when we're trying to get our heads around it, it's helpful to think about what it doesn't mean and, and what it does mean. So when we say that God is sovereign, it, we're not saying that God causes evil or sin. That is, theologians talk about the difference between God's permission and his positive determination. That is, it is not God who causes you or I to sin. It is not God who caused and made Adam eat the apple. But while God never causes sin, he is Lord over it and, he can prog- and, and sin progresses no further than his wisdom and goodness allows. So he's not, uh, sin is not outside his control, but, he, but, because he's, but just because he's in control doesn't mean he causes it. That's, that's the first thing we've got to get right when we're thinking about the sovereignty of God. But the, the next thing that the sovereignty of God doesn't mean is that we are robots without choice. That is... God in his good purposes and and in his unsearchable ways uh, works out his sovereign will through our human agency. That is, through the choices that we make, God works out his sovereign will and plan. And even though he's sovereign over that, it doesn't mean that we're not agents ourselves. Somehow. And actually what we see is how the Bible reflects this truth. We see it in the story of Daniel, back in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, right? A great example of uh, human agency uh, trusting God's sovereign control and God working out his sovereign plans and purposes. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have real choices to make when they face the decision about what they're going to do when they've been instructed to worship an idol. And they decide not to do it, trusting in the sovereign power of God to save but knowing that in his sovereign plans and purposes, he may not. And God uses that situation for his glory. 
He was in control the whole time. He knew what was going on. And yet those three men had agency. They had real choices to make. And likewise, King Nebuchadnezzar. He had multiple chances as he experienced the power, and, uh, the power of God to turn from his sin. As Daniel tells him what the dream means and begs him to do it. But it's not until everything is stripped from him that he decides to turn to God. But God is still controlling that. And he still had agency. Now, this is very complicated. In fact, there's a guy called Don Carson. Who's a, he's not just a guy, he's like a theological genius. Uh, and he, one of his PhDs, I think he might have a few, but at least one of them, uh, is on this whole subject of how the sovereignty of God works and how human agency works. And the book's about that thick, and I tried to read it once and got confused. Uh, uh, these are difficult topics. It's hard to fully understand and comprehend how it all fits together. But what we see in the Bible is that when we, when we do start to comprehend it, we're not meant to kind of dive down into a philosophical rabbit hole and, and kind of end some, in some crazy place that we can never get out of. Rather, we're meant to step back and marvel and praise God for his sovereign rule and reign. The sovereignty of God ought to lead us to praise. I mean, that's what happens for King Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? As he's sovereignly uh, controlling uh, the, the comings and goings of kingdoms and, 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 and showing to King Nebuchadnezzar his sovereign rule and power uh, as many times as King Nebuchadnezzar needs it before he comes to realise. At the end of that, when he does realise, what does he do? Verse 34... I praise the Most High, I honoured and I glorified him who lives forever. As he comes to an understanding of God's sovereign power, he turns to praise. And it's not just in Daniel we see it, we see it all over the Bible, but another place is in Romans 11, where uh, Paul talks about God's sovereign plan for Israel. Uh, and as he does that, in verses 33 to 36 of chapter 11, I don't want to give all my thunder away when I finish off Romans uh, next year. But uh, at the end of that, what does Paul do? As he's talked about God's sovereign rule, he moves to praise. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As we contemplate God's sovereignty and we realise that it doesn't mean he's evil, he's still a good God, as we realise it doesn't mean that we don't have agency, but as we struggle to hold all those things together uh, and, 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 and then realise the incomprehensibility of God, he's so much bigger than we are, we ought to be led to praise. And ultimately, the thing that ought to lead us to praise is the fact that God's sovereign reign is what means you and I 
will never ever be separated from him. As another scholar, a guy called Michael Horton says, as he reflects on uh, the writings of uh, John Calvin, he says, consideration of God's sovereignty is of inestimable benefit if we find our election in Christ as he is offered to all people in the gospel, but a dangerous labyrinth if we presume to investigate God's secret counsels. See what he's saying there? He's saying when we step back, what we're meant to do is praise God for the good news that in his sovereign uh, power, he sent his son in the world to die so that those whom he calls might find their salvation in him for eternity. It's fun at youth group or in Bible study to dive down the labyrinth of the sovereignty of God. But there comes a point where we need to walk back out and just marvel at God who is beyond our understanding but who has revealed a great truth to us, that God is in charge that he is Lord of our lives, that he has included us in Christ. And when we realise what God has done for us, that he will never let us go, then we ought to rejoice. Rejoicing not only in his rule and reign, but in his saving sovereign power. And then, after we do that, we ought to pray. Pray because when we remember God's sovereign control of this world, we pray because we pray to the one who has power to act. When I pray for my friends who don't know Jesus, I pray to a God who has the power to save, not to the God who has the power to influence or the power to um, just put something in front of them that they might open. I pray to the God who is powerful to save and that's why I go to my knees day after day for my friends who don't know the Lord Jesus. Because God is sovereign and he is powerful to save. And I can pray for a whole range of things. See, often people think that uh, if you believe in a sovereign God, then um, how can you pray for people to become Christians? Or how can you pray uh, for people who've been affected by natural disasters or whatever? After all, God caused it all. And I say, well, what good would it be to pray to a God who couldn't do anything about any of those things? God is sovereign over all, and though he, uh, he allows things to happen, he's not the cause, but he is powerful to act in and through and use all things for his sovereign purposes, of which I cannot fully comprehend. We praise, we pray, and we trust. If we go back to last week, to the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, what a great example that was of trusting the sovereign power of God but having no idea how things were going to turn out. And this side of the cross, 
we can do likewise. Trust in the sovereign power of God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, knowing that nothing will separate us from his saving power in Christ Jesus our Lord. That nothing will thwart his plan to bring you to eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so to continue day by day in praise, prayer and trust. Oh, amen.